Thanks again to everyone supporting us on the podcast through Patreon. Patreon allows our listeners an opportunity to contribute to the podcast and allow us to bring you great guests and content each week. Thank you to all of our patrons and a special shout out to Jonathan Lambert for being our largest donor. You too can become a patron by visiting patreon.com slash mentors, the number four M-I-L. This podcast is sponsored by Uncana, trusted natural solutions. Uncana is a leading voice of advocacy for CBD in the veteran LEO and federal communities. Veteran owned and operated, the Uncana team is actively fighting for DOD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag OpNatural. Uncana is vertically integrated with industry leaders from seed to sell, supplying premium small batch products to America's best. Use code mentors the number four MIL at checkout at uncana.com to receive your amazing discount. Read the Mentors for Military disclaimer at mentorsformilitary.com slash disclaimer. My scars tell a story. They're a reminder of times when life tried to break me but failed. They are markings of where the structure of my character was welded. This is a quote by Steve Maraboli. This quote made a profound statement on Blake Cook, our guest for this episode. You'll understand why after hearing his story. Paul and I enjoyed taping this episode for so many reasons, and Blake has made it his passion to share his story in hopes that it'll help others know that they are not alone in the fight against invisible wounds of war. Throughout the episode, you'll hear a crackling and occasional rubbing sound. We had no clue what this was until later on in the taping, and then we realized that it was being caused by Blake's massive beard rubbing against the microphone. (laughs) So, sit back and relax and get ready to enjoy another episode of Mentors for Military. This is the Mentors for Military Podcast. I'm glad we were finally able to connect because what last week, man, you had some pretty heavy stuff, I guess, that went down. Yeah, we stay busy, man. It's like, um, you know, I go into work at 10 and uh, I get off when I get off. Yeah. You know, um, unfortunately, the people that, that, you know, that we deal with, you know, we kind of on their time. So, you know, whatever they choose, we got to roll with it sometimes. But I can't imagine they don't want you to. You know, go home with your family and have a good time, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, you know they, they <laughs> nah, they 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 keep the shop open twenty four seven. Yeah, right. they're about making money. <laughs> we'll get into a little bit about what that is and everything. Where are you originally from? I mean, you're in you know North Carolina now, but where was it you originally grew up and everything? So I'm originally um, from West Virginia. Um, like I've said before, you know, I wish I could give everybody that good old story of you know my whole life. I wanted to be this barrel-chested freedom fighter but i come from a small town of um like three three thousand four thousand people yeah so you know um and i'm from you know like coal city so um you either play college sports you either go to the coal mines or you go to college because you're extremely intelligent 
uh, everybody else. That's it. I recently went to West Virginia. My wife um, has a sister that goes there on vacation. They own a plot of land and a house and everything that they had bought. And they had invited us up and to go to their property. Um, I was pretty much blown away. I'll have to share with you about West Virginia. I mean, yeah. it's absolutely beautiful country. Yeah. And we got up on this land and they had some friends over and everything that cooked and, you know, lots of tables and everything because we were there. And I had this one guy that was sitting next to me that was like an historian of the area. And he was sharing with me that as far as I can see, and we were on a hilltop, he goes, you know, as far as you can see right here, you need to understand all of this five years ago had no trees. And I'm like, there's no way, man. He goes, no, no, everything here. He goes, I'm here to tell you, this was all farm country and everything. And he goes, oh, so wow. all these trees are all brand new. These are beautiful green, you know, I don't know if they were elm or what they were. Beautiful trees that were ever, I think poplar uh, was mainly what they were. But just beautiful trees as far as the eye could see. And no homes that were anywhere within sight or anything. And um, he talked about the hard life and the history of that area, uh, you know, of the people. And you, you remember, could, you could you remember what part? I, I'll have to get back with you on the exact location. Yeah. But I'm I mean, we could go that. down and get breakfast for like you know a dollar fifty or something. And oh yeah, full on eggs, you know everything. And it's and it's good too. It is good, yeah. yeah. Yeah, some of the best people I know, you know, they, um, you know, a lot of them live in poverty, and that's okay because as long as they're healthy, you know, realistically, that's, you know, that's I guess I call it mountain living, but that's you know that that's all they know. And, you know, me, I, I was, you know, I'm good. I, I had to get out of there. Yeah. Well, I can understand yeah. that, man. You know, we so, probably all have that similar story where we just want to get the hell out of Dodge. Yeah, that's it. You know, you know, my, you know, a little bit about me, you know, unfortunately, I tell people you know, I was really good in sports. So um, I was mainly really good in football. Um, I got a uh, scholarship to play. And then, you know, once I got to school, it, it kind of just um, uh, I couldn't handle the the partying and the women so um i felt out i felt out um you know my mom you know my sweet mom she you know she tried she put me in like a community college and and i mean it was it was worse than the other college so i mean it was it, it sucked so uh, yeah. i laid around her house for about about eight months nine months and uh and she uh she called me up one day and she said hey look i need you to get a job um, by, f by five o'clock today, or I'm kicking you out. I'm going to have to give you some tough love. Whoa. I said, well, you, you, you can't kick me out. She's like, I'm, uh, I'm going to kick you out. So, you know, I, you know, I ain't give a shit. So I just kept playing call of duty, you know, killing it, crushing it. And she called me about three. She was like, you got a job. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm leaving the house now. You know, I'm going to go get a job. So I was playing, sitting there playing call of duty. I was like, this looks cool. You know, I go to the army whatever i had a buddy that i was playing with he was already in the army so uh i went to a recruiter office in beckley west virginia uh I, you know did all my contracts signed all my paperwork did all that and uh she came home and I, she asked me if i got a job i said yeah and, uh she asked me what i said yeah, i'm going to go to the infantry i'm gonna be in the army breaks down starts crying says she killed her baby she's all upset so oh my gosh um, yeah so that's that's you know that's kind of kind of how i got you know stuck with the military which ultimately ended up being the best decision i think i've ever made in my life yeah now what year was this uh 2009 okay yeah so i'd just gotten out of high school um 
did the semester of football. Uh, school was nice enough to give me another semester to party on. But, you know, yeah. And that, that summer was that, that was it. They wouldn't give you the eight year plan to finish a bachelor's degree, though. No, no, you know, I, I would have been great in in if they would offer something in beer pong. But yeah, they there didn't. you go. Yeah, so <laughs> not happening, not happening. Well, you know, and then you come down to Fort Benning to OSIT. Well, where did you go right to airborne school with an airborne contract when you went in, or was it? No, nah, so I, I didn't have so. Um, a family friend of mine uh, that was really good friends with with my mom and stuff. And, uh, and her husband was actually um, a lieutenant colonel in Delta, um, you know, and, and he was, you know, he was a, another reason why I kind of joined. And, and, you know, and I had a family member that was taking over my recruit and stuff, which was um, uh, he was a ranger and stuff. And, and he basically told me, you know, whatever you get, you're going to earn it. You know, you're, you're worthless right now. So, you know, you're not going to get handed nothing. Um, I'm gonna, you're going to go in here. You're going to go. You know, I had a pretty decent ASVAB score, too. Like, I could have got some stuff, but he was like, you're going to earn everything that you get in this career. Yeah. Um, so I didn't have anything. Um, so I got to Benning. I, you know, I'm terrified of height. So airborne school, like, what? that shit didn't even cross my mind because, like, I'm telling you right now, you put me on a ladder, my knees, my knees shake. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but then they were like, hey, uh, you know, because halfway through, you know, they kind of give you an idea of where you're going. Um and they gave it to us right before the last PT test. And they were like, you know, cook, so-and-so. And like, all the other dudes went to Italy. Oh, and 173rd, and, Vincenzo. Yeah. And then me and three other dudes get Korea. Oh. I'm like, so how, the hell, how does everybody in this group get Italy and I get Korea? Like, I cause y'all no problems, no trouble. Oh. I mind my business. So I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, so finally I go up to my uh, uh, senior drill instructor. I'm like, hey, look, I don't want to go to Korea. I was like, I'm I'm from the country. I don't I don't I don't know what they what they serve over there, but I, I like I like steak, potatoes, and biscuits, and they ain't gonna have that there. So I need I need to get out of this. And he said, Look, man, the only way you're gonna get out of this is if you get a hundred on your next PT test and get an airborne contract. So uh, fortunately, um, I got a hundred on my next PT test, and and they. They held through to their word and gave me an airborne contract. Wait, now did everybody in your class already have an airborne contract? Because I mean, if they were scheduled for yeah. one set, oh really? Okay, yeah. So yeah. you three were the only guys yeah. that have been only ones that did not have a freaking airborne contract. Wow, everybody, and it was like because it was weird because there was like I don't know twenty something of us, maybe more, maybe thirty or forty, and everybody had an airborne contract. So that was my thing. Everybody was like, oh. Why didn't you get an airborne contract? Your recruiter fucked you. I'm like, no, he didn't fuck me. It's my family member, and he told me I was going to earn everything, okay? So it's not like, you know, your recruiter was like, yeah, it's going to be Call of Duty. My recruiter told me it's going to suck. You're going to hate your life. So you're about to eat MREs for the next three months and shit brick. So I, I know what's going to happen. You guys have no idea. So that's that's kind of the, you know, so me and three other dudes just got screwed, you know? Yeah, but so, you did earn it, right? Yeah, Paul? I got it. Yeah, I got it. It was it. It sucked, but um, I got it, and and I didn't feel. You know, what? I always knew that I hated heights, but I never had a true fear of heights until I realized. And once I got to airborne school, I was like, "Damn, probably should have just went to Korea. This sucks. Like this, you know, this this really really sucks. A lot of running, my shins hurt, and then they start talking about the towers, and I'm like. Yeah. Oh, how are you going to do this? 
So yeah. How how, how, how was that first time standing the door in the thirty five foot tower? Uh, that sucked. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, literally, like I, you don't understand. Like I don't, I wouldn't stand at that point in my life. I wouldn't stand on the top of my fucking car. <laughs> like I hate heights. Like something about falling to my death just just scares me. And then my first jump, I'm like, okay, cool. You know, how am I gonna wiggle this out so I can follow? six seven other dudes out run out behind them and not think about it and yeah. i can do that that's fine that's not a problem yeah that's, i'm sitting there thinking i'm like okay cool i'm gonna be the last one that loads this plane the heat of uh, heights and the whole bit and of course i thought the exact same thing you know all you got to do is just follow the butts through the door man that thing every time i see yeah. it you know they're shuffling through there you know I, yeah i'm like you know i can be the guy in the back and everything will be cool and then they tell us no no, no they're going to grade you on every single yep. door exit it's well, like, well, hold on one second. So I'm the last one in the back of a C-130. I'm the first one out the door. <laughs> okay? You were holding on, Paul. You were holding on. So I sat down. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to follow these dudes out. And then I'm sitting there looking down the row. I'm like, oh, there's a, there's a – I got a door in front of me. They don't have a door. And the jump master looks at me. He's like, hey, you're – you're the first one, so when I tell you to go, you gotta jump. And I'm like, yeah, like, huh? <laughs> oh man. And I looked at him. I'm like, like, the, what do you mean the first one? Like, he's like, you're gonna be the first one out, and everybody's gonna follow you. So I remember they opened up the door. And I remember looking out, and like the trees, everything looked so small. And I remember standing at the door, and I'm like, literally, like, I'm not crying, but but water's coming out of my face, like mm-hmm. one after another. And I look back at this dude, and I'm like. I'm like, hey, my sergeant shows up. I'm like, are you sure that my parachute's going to open? I, I don't like heights. And as soon as I said that, that our, our green light go. And that dude took his foot and, and hand. kicked your ass, didn't he? And sh- he knew. He knew. Yeah. Like, I'm going to tell you right now. He knew my ass was about to, to, to freeze. Well, you probably shoved- look at your hands and saw you had a knuckle grip on that door. That There is oh, yeah. no way in hell. Yeah. Hey, I thanked him though. I, you know, at the end of all of it, I thanked him because you know my next couple jumps. After you get the first one, it's kind of like, oh, you know, this is cool. Like I'm, this is whatever. But you know, once I landed, it was like, I've never been so happy before in my life. Yeah. So uh, you know, that was my first. That was my first major suck experience. Yeah. Was yeah. was that because I did not plan that right at all ever. You remember those That's days, so- Paul? Oh yeah. Yeah, the, that was a miscalculation for sure, man, being the last one on the bird. I had a I had a buddy. He thought that we jumped in front of the wing. He thought we jumped in front of the prop. No way. Yeah, and he was so <laughs> terrified. And so we, we all get to the aircraft. It's like the first time we're actually on an aircraft or a mock aircraft with wings, whatever. And it dawns on him. He's like, oh, I'm so relieved. And he's telling this everybody, oh, we're going to make it. It's going to be all right. I'm like, what are you worried about? He's like, I thought we jumped in front of the prop. No, I, yeah. just, I still die laughing. Like you just send yeah. paratroopers yeah. through the prop. Of you got to swim through the like air and get past it. Yeah. Kicks, yeah. Yeah. If, you, if you're lucky, you're lucky. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. Yeah. Now, that's crazy. Um, so after airborne school, then you get assigned, or when did the assignment come in? Yeah. So um, as as we were about to leave airborne school, they, they finally come up and was like, hey, you know, you got your new orders. You're, you're going to brag. Um you know, and I thought it was cool because it's you know it's it's I 
yeah, I grew up going to like Myrtle Beach and stuff like that. So I was like, oh, cool. You know, I'm not far from only four hours from home and stuff and yeah. everything like that. And then, um, then once I got to Bragg, it was like, damn, like, look at all these. There's so like everybody with a maroon beret on was a, was like a tool bag. And there are a lot of guys with maroon berets on it. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Bragg, everybody yeah. walked around, dude. Right, let me tell you something right now. Everybody thought they were like chuck norris everybody thought they were cool i was like man it's gonna be a lot of type a people here this is <laughs> this is gonna be a long four years but oh god so um how long were you at the at fort bragg and with the 82nd before you had to make your first deployment then uh, i was there um uh, I'd say about a, I'd say about a year and two months. Okay. I got there like at the beginning of uh, 2011. Yeah. Five, um, 504th Infantry or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 1504th. Mm-hmm. Um, we deployed um, about, about mid-February, mid end of February. Mm-hmm. So, um, Where'd you end up going to? Uh, Ghazni, Providence, Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. Paul knows that yep. area. Yeah, it was yep. a Been there. really shitty area. You know, a lot of, yeah. a lot of, a lot of real... A lot of real country people. Were you doing any Overwatch or anything at that time frame, Paul? During that same time frame? Uh, no, I think uh, 2012 was my last deployment, and we were down. At, well, I know it was, but we were down in. We were out of Leatherneck. We weren't doing a whole lot. It was a winter deployment, so mm. yeah. You know, I was in Gosney. I think 2010, 11. We just passed yeah. through. Yeah. So we had, we had just got there right after you, probably. You know, we uh we ended up replacing um the Polish. The Polish were there. Oh. Um and them jokers are crazy. They'll do anything <laughs> to get back to to make that chow time. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we ended up replacing them um right as uh winter was ending and, and fighting season was, was uh starting to starting to brew up. Yeah. Lucky. Yeah. Yeah. Kinda lucky in that you didn't have to go through that winter, right? Yeah, it, I mean, it was cold a little bit when we got there, but I mean, it, it it didn't it wasn't it didn't stay too cold. So yeah, um, I'm you know I hear a lot of people. I got buddies um, that are that are there now, and they're and they're just they're miserable. They're so cold. Yeah, yeah. So were you over there um, at the same time frame that uh, the LT? No, it would have been too soon. Uh, you wouldn't have known the LT that uh, that died and everything here uh, a couple of years back. Uh, Lee. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Weston. Yeah, yeah. I, I knew Weston. He was a. Um, that dude was a an outstanding person. Um, I wasn't. Um, I wasn't like super close with him, but um, you know, we were associates. We worked out in the same gym together. We, you know, we we talked every time we seen each other. You know, when I, when we see we go out, I, you know, I I shake his hand, talk to him. We talked for a little bit, but. Um, Man, that, that, that kid was an outstanding person. I tell you, like one of the few people that you meet in the world, and you're just like, man, that's a that's a genuine dude. Yeah. Um, he's I, definitely one of those people. Yeah, I think he. Uh, I think he was killed. Seventeen. Uh, yeah, two years ago. Um, yeah. it would have been. We followed him, and he followed us uh, via social media. Listened to our podcast episodes and everything, and yeah, um, he shared some material with us that we ended up dropping on occasion. And you know, he seemed like a really genuine guy. Um, I texted yeah. with him more than spoke with him on the phone. 
And um, that dude really wanted to be a ranger. Like yes. that was his. Um, you know, I think that's, and I think he would have been a great one. I think he would, he was going to be a great leader. Um, unfortunately, I'm I'm the type of person that believes, you know, uh, when it's you know when it's your time to go, it's it's kind of your time. You're not you you can't prevent that. On no matter how safe you try to play life, you you're not going to prevent the day that that um the day you die on earth. So right. Um, I think everybody that ever met him was a was a better person for meeting him. Yeah. Most definitely. I would agree with that. So take us back to your deployment and um, how was it? What was, what was something that kind of stood out on that, that deployment for you? So it was, it was only supposed it was only like a seven month deployment, but it was, um, it felt like a lifetime. It was, um, it's a very shitty deployment. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, nobody liked us there. Like the people didn't like us there. You know, we had one people, we had, you know, one, one, one group of people right outside our, our little fob, you know, hell, they still thought like the Russians were there, like they still in the 90s. So like, you know, that's just how out of date they were, you know, they didn't trust us. And, and, and ultimately, like, we're stupid to go over there and think that we can gain people's trust. Like, you know, if, if let's say the Taliban came here to save us from the American soldiers, are you going to live here for the rest of your life? Mm-hmm. No, I'm, I'm going to pick. I'm going to pick the soldier side because eventually you can't protect me forever. So like, you know, so we did that. Um, you know, I, I think our main mission was to, um, gain their trust and try to help, you know, you, you know, that Afghan army and the police. And I mean, you know, they're crooked as hell too. So, I mean, we, we were trying, but at the same time, like that, the whole, um, What's his name? Bergdahl, mm-hmm. the prisoner of war. You know that was that was that was a hot topic. So, um, and he, you know, he was right there on, you know, because Ghazni's right there on that Pakistan border, and they knew that he was on the Pakistan border somewhere. So, you know, that was always a priority too. And, you know, that was that was shitty. Um, yeah, you guys never got called out to go and do any type of search and rescue or anything. Yeah. No, I mean we went to a couple places where, where they said they had, they had seen him. That you know he had been there not not too long ago. Now whether they were bullshitting or not, you know, there was never any facts that would say like, hey, this is some clothing or any type of evidential value of anybody's statements. But sure, um, you know, everybody kind of knew um, uh, as far as like local population of of you know, everybody kind of knew that we were looking for this guy, mm-hmm. um, you know, because it's, it's a hot topic. You know, it was the first so-called prisoner of war in years, right? So yeah, so-called, yeah, yeah, so war. Called. yeah. Um, that, that was during the drawdown too, or in prepare, preparation of the drawdown in two, 2014 yeah. that Obama had proposed. And so that was a tough time to be operating over there because you'd, you'd feel like you're making progress. But a lot of those guys, they're just smiling at you, biding their time because they knew come 2014, they were going to have free run. And yeah. it's hard to convince somebody that they should, uh, be on our side instead of the Taliban's when they know that we're leaving, we're not going to stay, which ended up not exactly being the case, but yeah. And, and, and difficult they're, time. they're, they're vicious people. So like, damn, I mean, like, there's not like, you know, you don't obey them. You go to jail. Like, you don't obey them. They'll just cut your head off and not even care. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Like I, I just, I never understood that concept, but you know, I always did what I was told and 
you know, just did the mission that was given at hand and just did it to the best we could. I mean, because, um, I mean, the whole time we were there, you know, either either Afghan National Army was getting killed or, or like, somebody, in, in his, you know, somebody from us were getting killed. Um, and it was just like, or, you know, you, I remember um, I ended up meeting the guy later on once I got to Warrior Transition Battalion two years later. Um, there was a kid that, that he was training a uh, Afghan National Army dude on a saw. The guy picked a saw up and shot him from, oh, his, from his from his feet all the way up to his shoulder. Um, he ended up I mean, he he ended up surviving. So you know, I ended up meeting him later on in life, and and it just kind of like made me even more angry of like why we're even over there. So you know, it, it's just I, I get I get we're American, we want to help everybody, but. You know, it was it was hard. It was hard to you know try to win over a population that didn't like you in the first place. Mm-hmm. So, what happened on that one particular day, though? So, on that day, the day I got blown up was uh, May the twenty fourth of uh, two thousand twelve. Um, actually, two days after my son's birthday, um, we were QRF um, for those next two days. And apparently, um, one platoon, and I think maybe a mixture, because uh, we were there with um, some SF dudes. They had a little outpost near near us. Um, I, I, I think they were running some type of joint operation. Um, they ended up taking heavy fire, kind of getting pinned down at their vehicles. So we got spun up. Um, the person that was um, in the um, talk that was that was planning the route was trying to get us there faster um but unfortunately sent us down a black road that wasn't cleared of ieds for two weeks oh, um geez. so as soon as we turned off that road um i took my headset off um i was a gunner um i was uh hollering at somebody to to to, to grab something um because i couldn't hear with the headsets what my were you in had, at that time frame uh i was in an mrap okay um so, um, I was trying to holler at them, and, and as soon as I took my headset off, because um, I'd had a, um, I, I just kind of pulled it back. As soon as that went off, um, I remember, um, like a large, like hearing a large, like just a massive bang. Um, I could feel dirt hit me in the face. It, so the pressure, so it actually went off between. Um, the vehicle in front of me, the vehicle in front of me took the most damage, but I took me personally hanging out of the turret. I took the blast, the the force. So when that IED went off, I went back uh, into the turret. I split my plate in half. Um, I hit my head off the back of the, um, even though I had a helmet on it, so it didn't help. I hit my head off the back of the turret, and then with the force coming forward, I ended up hitting my face off the 240, which. Um, all of this is numb. I have no feeling in, in this side of my face at all to this day. So, um, that's all I remember. Um, you know, I posted something the other day. I ended up getting in contact with my medic. He, he still remembers it. Um, so my medic was below me and, um, I talked to him the other day to, to you know, cause he kind of reminds me of everything. And, um, he said, dude, I remember I, I just, I fell. Um, cause you know, it's, it's, there's not a lot of room back there. So you get, you know, four dudes, four or five dudes. It's, you kind of fall into their lap, and I fell into the lap. I was bleeding everywhere. Um, 
and this is just from what they said because I, I don't remember any of it. I'll tell fast forward to when I woke up. I woke up. Um, the back was already out. People were already setting security. I was strapped down to a, to a board. Um, and I remember like moving my arms to try because I, I was like, damn, I'm strapped in. You know, and then I went to move my legs and I couldn't really feel my legs. Mm. They're like very tingly. It was kind of like the only way I can describe it is about a, uh, about a year ago, I had a rhabdo on my legs. Mm-hmm. I did a um, competition and my legs were so swollen with blood. Um, I could see them. They were tingling, but I couldn't physically move them. So it, my initial thought was, damn, man, you kind of screwed right now like this. This is this is this is bad. Um, and then I remember everybody's trying to call in, you know, the air support. Um, they're trying to call in a bird, but it was extremely windy. It was terrible conditions. Um, but there was me and two other guys that were hurt. The other guys ended up just having minor injuries, but um, well, not minor. I mean, a broke, one guy had broken jaw, so that's not really minor injury. But mm-hmm. um, his jaw was 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 messed up, and I was on the board. We were. We were in the back of the thing. Um, I remember people talking about, you know, you know, be aware of possible movement coming towards you, an, an element. Um, and that sucked because I remember, you know, you, you lay there and you're like, shit, like, you know, what if, what if, you know, we're a platoon of 30 people? Like, how many do they got? Like, you know, we, we can't, you know, um, we ain't got an Apache over us yet. They're trying to call in birds are trying to call in an apache because i mean we weren't even that far from the fob we were maybe two miles from the fob so wow. it, it wasn't even like we were that far um and uh finally um ended up being ended up being nothing so nobody actually was heading towards us which was cool i, I later found that out but luckily they got a, a black hawk in um they're able to get us out they got me to a little medical thing at the at the fob and uh evaluated me there um, but you know, they got my face, you know, I, I broke my nose, so the man, mainly the blood. If you look at my nose, it's all crazy. So I was in the, um, I was being evaluated by the medical. They were real worried about me. Um, they worried about my brain injury. I had some, had a large knot on my head and, um, you know, so the main priority was we got to get him to Bagram. We got to get him some, some, some real medical care. Well, unfortunately the next three days was some of the shittiest weather I think I've ever seen in my life. Oh my um, God. It was like flooding on the fob. It was, it was, it was, I never knew it could rain so much in a desert, but whatever. Um, so I laid there for three days and those, uh, luckily I was able to get a phone. I was able to call my wife. I could, I could barely even talk. I, um, my speech was kind of crazy. Um, and the stupid ass people of, um, FRG. Um, I had called my, my wife and, and mom were, my wife went to visit my mom that weekend and the FRG people called my family and told my family that I had died. What? Yeah. Called my wife and called my mom and told them there was a serious accident. Um, somebody is dead and they believe that it's your husband. That's insane. Yeah. Not the military. That's insane. Nobody called my wife. My wife still remembers that to this day. Um, it was a very traumatic event for her because, uh, you know, from I've been married for eight years. And from, uh, you know, I met my wife when I was in the military and we got married. Um, I went in for a haircut. We got married 32 days later and we've been married for eight years. So here's this guy she just got married to 
um, and then deploys. And two months into the appointment, he's, he's dead. So that was kind of hard for her. Um, so luckily, you know, my mom was really upset. So luckily, by the grace of God, 45 minutes after they were told that, um, you on the first, I called. And I was like, hey, I'm good. And they were like, they were like, what is going on? Is this my husband? Is this my son? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, don't don't listen to FRG. She's probably drinking some wine. She got a little crazy. Don't listen to it. Don't ever believe that stuff unless it's the army that calls you. Somebody from the army will come to the house and probably get in contact with you. Yeah. I said, I'm fine. You know, I said, we got in a little accident. I didn't go into any details. I said, hey, look, I got to go to the hospital. Um, Might have broke my nose. Nothing big. Um, I'll call you once I get there in a couple of days. No worries. So, you know, once they got through that, um, I spent the next three days there. Um, I thought I was going to get on a bird and go out, but it didn't happen. So during those three days, I think were the worst. No, I mean, it might have been two days. I, um, it was probably the worst experience I've, I've ever had to this date in, in, in my life. So you're laying there in this um, plywood wall building. Um, no cover, no nothing. People are still shooting mortars at you. I got these medics that are throwing, um, like, plate carriers on me. Like, dude, if a mortar comes through this building and it hits this plate carrier, it's going to shred me. So just leave it off on me. You know, it's uncomfortable. So, and then at the same time, they're bringing in Afghan National Army people. They're bringing in local people that have been shot. You know, yeah, bringing in an American soldier that had been shot. And you're sitting there and you're laying there, like, two feet from them. You hear them screaming in pain and then oh my gosh man oh and then they're dead you know so then you're laying there and you like look over and i'm and like oh shit like they're dead you know because they go and they wash up and then somebody comes and puts them in their little bag and does everything with them and you're like yo like what is going on because you don't get no phone you know i couldn't get anything because I was, I, was, I, was, I, was, I was just i was messed up so yeah. all i could do was lay there and drink some water you know because being in the military being in the military they pumped me with massive amounts of morphine for two days. So I was just high as a kite. And, you know, then it, it doesn't bother you because you're so high. Like, it, it don't even matter. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you know, once you think about it later on in life, you're like, dude, like, I've never, I've never heard anybody scream like that. So it was crazy. I mean, they had a lady come in. She was severely burned. She ended up dying of her burn. So it was, it was wild. It was, a, it was a wild couple of days. So yeah. luckily they came in. Uh, one morning about four o'clock and said hey um we got you a, a plane flight out of here a helicopter ride out of here to bargram where you can get cat scans and or, and get all that so um i get to bargram um and this is why i really think the military needs to um step up their game on injuries that are like that you can't see like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. obviously if my legs blown off or obviously you know my face was messed up yeah that's obvious but you know, if, if somebody's arm's blown off, you know, they can see that and they treat it a little bit differently. So once I got to the hospital, I had a neck brace on, I had all this stuff, you know, um, I didn't get a CT scan. Um, I didn't get an MRI. Um, I didn't even get, um, I didn't get anything. Now, now uh, of course, they know the story at this time yeah. frame, right? So do so they know that your back of your head hit the turn? Yeah. The front of your head hit a 240. Oh, I, had a, I, had a, I had a knot. I had a knot on, the side, on, on my head. Yeah, I mean, the blast itself yeah. going off like, 500 I got, pounds, I got, right? I got told, you ever had a concussion before? 
That's, that's, that's just what it is. Oh, yeah, just shake it off. So, um, luckily, after a couple of days, um, I was able I was able to move around. And then week after week, my, the tingling in my legs went away and, and stuff like that. So, it was it was okay. Um, but then after about a month or so of just dealing with the bullshit of – because the doctor's there. Like, I'm going to be honest with you. Like, unless you – Unless you're bleeding out, unless you've been shot, that's really what they're there for. Um, yeah. So I did about a, I did over a little month in, um, and then I got sent to this little, I call it like a safe place where people that have been hurt or whatever, they go there and the only thing they can do is you just they got you this little house, they have some snacks and a bed and you just they want you to sleep. So they gave me. Holy cow, they gave me like an unlimited supply of Ambien and was like, take one in the morning, take one at night. Um, really? Sleep as much as you can. Yeah. So basically, you just go and you sleep. And like, so finally, I was like, you know what, this sucks. Like, okay, Blake, evaluate yourself. You can walk. Um, you feel your hands. You can probably shoot a gun if you needed to. Um, I'm miserable right now. This sucks. Like. You know, my friends, you know, people that I call family are still in a, are still there. So finally I was like, hey, um, you know, I'm good. Everything's fine. Like, I feel better. You know, just send me back. I got, you know, three or four months, um, whatever. Um, what What was yeah. your rank at this time? Uh, E4. E4? Yeah. With with no college and they let you make that call after a concussive, concussive head trauma no, and no, blast no, overpressure. I'll take that back. <laughs> A lieutenant colonel. I was at E three. A little yeah. a lieutenant colonel let me make that decision. That's insane. And was okay with that. And it's this was in 2013. Twelve. I mean, it's not 2012. Yeah. So it's not like we didn't have a track record of of blasted overpressure injuries. Yeah. I mean, you're like, you're talking. You're not talking, like there wasn't anything about this yet. You know, like this was thir- 13 years of war. Yeah. So you know, That's it's not like it's so happened. egregious, man. Um. So, so they were like, okay. So I went back. Um, I, I had my migraines were bad. Um, there was times where like the tingling in my legs came back, and um, my nosebleeds. I'm, I never really had nosebleeds, but but I was getting two two nosebleeds a day. So I knew something wasn't right, um, but I didn't want to say nothing because at that point, um, there's a uh, you get labeled in the army if you continue to get help as a shitbag. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's shitbagging, you know, the sick call ranger. Mm-hmm. So I was like, you know what, man, like, you, you know, just just push through. You got a couple months. So, um, and during all this, um, I had a squad leader um, while I was at Bragg. His name was um, Sergeant Fredsty. Good dude, man. He's, he's been in for like eight or nine years, six deployments. Um, you know, you really kind of look at somebody like that that literally has deployed – Every year, and it's not like easy deployments, you know. He deployed Afghanistan, you know, like all, like he was in Afghanistan in the in the early two thousands. Um, so that that's a shit. That was a shitty time to be there. So like, you look at this dude as a warrior, as a leader. He was my squad leader for a little while. You know, he was the type of person that like he took care of you. Like he treated you like a person. He treated you like family. He didn't tr- he didn't worry about your rank. He, if you needed something, he had your back. If you're out in the field, he had your back. He let nobody talk shit to you. He let nobody else with rank tell you what to do. Like he was a good dude. Like he he like took you under like so when I first got there, I didn't he like t- takes you under your wing. And and I mean he was a solid dude. And in my eyes, being, you know, twenty two years old, 
my first appointment to me this dude's like a like a like a war hero to me like this this is like man like i'm gonna listen to this dude and uh and he was shot and killed on um in june on uh and he was shot right over here barely missed his, his kit and um you know you know they do the blood drive you know um uh, if you're uh o positive or whatever come come give blood and um and uh, at this point i'd kind of um i'd already kind of been back i went back um i just gotten back and uh i felt so guilty because they wouldn't let me give blood because of my tattoos and uh they're worried about I, hepatitis or something is yeah because i'd gotten a tattoo within a year hmm. I mean, i'm covered in tattoos but like you know i think he i think he bled out and died um and uh that that really sucked because like you know maybe i shouldn't have got my tattoos you know and, and you can't predict things in life like now, that's something I thought about forever, but, like, so here you are, you got this dude you, you thought was invincible that, like, like, just been in Afghanistan during the worst times, and then here he is, fuck, he got killed in the same Providence that you're in, doing public, or we call it in my, my world now, like, we're doing community relations. Mm-hmm. You know, and he got killed when he's already been in multiple firefights, multiple like real, like some real shit. But he got killed on a on a community relations appointment. So like, you know that that really set with everybody. I think everybody kind of ate that one and was like, you know, because again he was a good dude. Yeah, I think everybody kind of ate that. So we ended up coming back in in September um, of that year, and. We came back, we did our evaluations, and, um, you know, you do all the check-in stuff. And I remember, um, you know, again, I didn't, I didn't want to tell him anything. Like, my migraines were off the fucking chain. Like, it got to the point where I wanted to take an Ambien just to go to sleep. Like, my migraines hurt, my nosebleeds hurt. Um, How was you your know, back and head at that time for other than migraines? My back was absolutely... I was so scared to tell somebody the truth to find out the truth. Um, and I think that, um, and ultimately that's what ended up happening is, is we were doing our pre-check. They were taking my blood and both of my nostrils started bleeding. And I was like, Oh shit. They're like, well, when did you start this happening? I was like, well, I got blown up over there. You know, um, had a real bad head injury. You know, I didn't really get much help. Um, and they were like, Hey, we're stopping you right now. You're going to Walmart. And I was like, okay. Like, that, that, and now I'm like, well, shit. Like, now, fuck, like, God. It's kind of like, you know, your knee hurts and you don't want to go get, you know, you don't want to go find out that you tore something because you got to have surgery. Right. So I'm sitting there and I'm just like, man, this really sucks. Like, so I go there and, you know, they start looking through my, 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 my file of everything that happened on deployment and, they were like, hey, man, look, we got to get you into a CAT scan. Um, so they got me into a CAT scan, find, then find out that my, my brain was swelling. Um, and then my brain just started swelling so much. Like, So um, they were trying to figure out a plan for me. They, they asked me if I wanted a profile. I said, no, I don't want to look. You don't understand. Like, That's forbidden. Like, Let's work through what we got. We'll get some appointments. Um, and I remember 
um, we ran, and this was the last run ran r- run that I ever did. We did a battalion run um, because the fucking Red Devils love doing some stupid shit. And I ran that whole five miles, and I don't even remember it to this day. I remember walking in, getting a drink of water. I don't remember running. Wow. I came, I came back, and they were like, I remember somebody coming over to me and like kind of shaking me and like, hey, man, you okay? And I, and I was like, yeah. Like, and I looked down, and I'm like sweaty. I'm like, yo, we do PT. They were like, yeah. So I was like, all right. I kind of kept that quiet, you know, because I had a doctor's appointment that day, and I told them. And then my, my swelling got kind of started getting real bad, and then started affecting like my back and like so my nerves started getting real bad in my back so my, my nerves were the pains are worse too yeah so my nerves were um what ended up happening with my back is my nerves and my back started to like fight against each other so my nerves were so damaged mm. and then after i did that run i started getting the tingling in my legs and by the time i got to cape fear and not cape fear that's the local hospital here by the time i got to walmack i couldn't feel my legs so then they were like okay look we just started a traumatic brain injury pipeline. It's we're gonna do. We're gonna start out with six people. Y'all are the first six to ever do it. Do you want to do this? And I'm like, is it gonna help me? They're like, yeah. You know, at that time I had a real bad stuttering problem. Um, I never never stuttered before in my life. I still stutter now, but you know they got me in the pipeline. So that was three appointments a day, every day, 24 months, five days a week. I did. I did speech therapy, memory therapy, and physical therapy. I literally had to learn to crawl and then run. Um, I had to learn words again. I had to do flashcards with words. I had to do, like, memory puzzles. It was absolutely miserable, um, but my wife really helped me get through all that. Like, she was spot on. She drove me to appointments. She did She did it all. And then um, after physical therapy, after about... I don't know, six months, seven months in physical therapy. Um, I spoke with a doctor. I started like, I literally woke up one morning and my tingling went away. And I still felt weak walking, but I could walk. And then it eventually ended up getting better. But what happened is I didn't know this is your nerves, nerves healed themselves. I didn't know this. I had no idea. Hmm. So my nerves in my back started healing themselves once we started working on my brain swelling going down. Mm-hmm. So once my brain swelling went down, my brain was able to function with the rest of my body to start healing. My body started healing, which was really cool. I had no idea. I, the doctor was explaining it to me. I, I mean, I'm, I'm from a town of 5,000 people. Yeah. You know, we put Band-Aids on stuff. We don't go to doctors. So I had no idea any of this. So that's what I ended up. That was ultimately was, was the only information that I ever really got over the next two years yeah. about well, you think um, about where the, the nerves begin, you know, up in the head and go down the spine and kind of follow that whole pattern and stuff yeah. there. And that's why it's so critical, you know, that when people get a back injury or a neck injury, um, that they, they do all the, the right workup because it could be really severe. And having had personally myself nerve damage and nerve pain, it is some of the most extreme pain and, and Paul, I know you've gone through this as well that you can ever deal with. And it's not something like you can take an ibuprofen and it'll go away. Nerve pain, yeah. it doesn't react to that, right? So, man, I can't. Uh, well, I that's can't. what I got told, man. I got told that for years. I, got, I mean, not years, but I got told that for months until, you know, luckily um, we got rid of our first sergeant and we got a new first sergeant. And he was like, 
because my other first sergeant was was like, you know, if if you if you had pain and like you had anything wrong with you, like ibuprofen and whiskey was the answer. Oh yeah, Motrin, like, man, like candy. Yeah. Right, dude. I don't need to be drinking Jack Daniels right now. Mm-hmm. Like I'm fucked up. I like, don't recommend that to me. And don't call me a shitbag because I'm going to get help. Like I'm I'm 23 years old. Mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not gonna or 22. I'm not gonna be fucked up for the rest of my life. You know. You look at you. You sit in your office and you drink six beers before you go home. You hate your life. I'm not gonna get to that point. So you know that's it's another stigma in the army is 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 the army's okay with you drinking it, and they're okay with shoving opiates in your mouth. So pick and choose. Like you want me to drink? You want me to take the opiates? I can't do both because yeah, then I'm, then it's well, a problem. And and as soon as you have a disciplinary problem, cause it, you're, you're drinking too much and you get in trouble downtown or you start showing up late cause you're taking all the prescriptions they gave you, then it's on you. Then you're the shit bag. Yeah. And, and meanwhile, the guy, same guys that take your beret away or, you know, decide to start your paperwork because you had this problem, they're all sitting around drinking uh, with each other the day after they uh, they do it. Doing the same 100% thing. Hundred percent agree with you, man. And it's I, it's toxic culture. I had team leaders, platoon sergeants, and we, you know, the whole idea was to before you turn in sensitive items, you know, there'll be a, a subset of people that were required to go down and get the booze and everything, and they'd even put them in trash cans with uh, ice to let them cool. And then, of course, once all the sensitive items are turned in, the weapons are cleaned, all that kind of good stuff, then that was party time. And that's, you didn't go home until the next day, you know, yeah. type of thing. Yeah, like, 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 if you choose to sleep in your office, like, cool, but don't, like, look at me and be like, yeah, well, men drink whiskey. Like, the fuck? What's wrong with you? Look at your life. Yeah. You in there drinking Michelob Ultras in your office. Like, don't be telling me what to drink. This could like, have gone it, really sour, though, Blake, because, I mean... It's poor leadership, man. Well, just like, and, and not just that, but nobody saw any of the sci- signs and symptoms well enough to encourage you to go get some kind of assistance. They just saw you as, you know, an individual that's sucking up the pain or whatever the case may be. I mean, your your brain could have been bad enough where they'd have had to drill yeah. into it to relieve the pressure. Well, the the problem is is like he said, you know, we're thirteen years in the war, twelve years in the war. Yeah, nobody decided to. Well, you're the first of the traumatic brain injury crew. Yeah, like we got told, like, hey, guys are coming home and killing themselves from this. We got to do something. We don't know anything about it, so we're going to set up something that we think might work. Well, thank God they, they at least took the initiative yeah. to do that, but to your point, yeah, 12, 13 years and, in. And I'm tell you, it worked. Like, um, I still think the program's going. I think that the program now, um, um, when I was getting out, we were – it was so successful that they were building a actual real facility for this. Mm-hmm. I think, it, you know, I don't, I don't like going on brag much anymore. I I've never really checked on it. You know, something that I kind of want to do here recently is is um, go check on it and and see, visit the people there, you know, because you when should. I was there, yeah. you know, I remember sitting there thinking like, man, I ain't never going to get, you know, I'm never going to get back to the same, you know, and never would I guess in three years, you know, I'd be on a gang unit, on a SWAT team, like back to being normal. So, 
I think you that know, kind of voice would be helpful to those guys, I would imagine, oh, yeah. that are laying there and wondering, did they make the right decision, much like you were at that time frame? Yeah. They yeah. knew that they, you know, like you, you, you knew you were messed up. You knew you reached a point of which you couldn't cure yourself, and you just weren't going to heal over time, at least not in enough time because of all the, the rigor of maintaining yourself as an airborne soldier. So you had to take some kind of action. Thank God you did. Yeah, But some of these guys may be questioning themselves, laying there and wondering, did I still make the right decision? Seeing you come in and, and yeah. make those statements, I think it could be very helpful. And, 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 and that's what I hope, you know, you know, I, you know, I, I never did anything special in the army, but, you know, I had, I've had people, you know, that follow my Instagram that are in SF and Rangers or, you know, I've had a SEAL reach out to me and they're like, hey, man, uh, you know, I want you to know that, like, I went and got help. Um, for my mental illness or I got help for my drinking or I got help for my physical injury because I see you and I see that you have succeeded out of the army and continue to do, you know, great stuff outside the army. So I want to get help because I want more than the army and people should want that. They should want more than the army. Don't, don't let the army define you. you think. Yeah. yeah, define you and make you think that this is the best you're going to do in life. Mm-hmm. You know, the Army is a great stepping stone, and that's all it will ever be is a stepping stone. And you're going to do great things outside of the Army, whether you're hurt because your injuries injuries don't define who you are or where you can go in life. You know, you define that, period. You know, we're all type A people. That's why we do in the Army. We're type A men. We're type A women, and we want to go – fight for our country i mean period so you know with that attitude i really think that um i think that people will will be successful and i've been preaching it like crazy because i want to reach as many people as many platforms as i can because you know so many people suffer in silence so many people um are in pain physical and mental pain and and, and and we can get on the topic of opiates. Let's get on the topic of that. Let's get on topic of, of how the Army wants to shove. You know, so I was getting prescribed oxycodones, okay, or Percocets. Well, they can only give me so many Percocets, so they give me oxycodones. You know, so, like, why are you giving me – why the fuck are you giving me oxys and Percocets? Isn't that like a uh, – isn't that against the law? Yeah. Like, yeah. And then you want to give me, hey, man, try these two sleeping pills, okay? One – one might taste a little crazy, so we'll give you 30 of these just to try. And I forgot the name of it, but if those don't work, here's 30 Ambien's. I'm like, so I was on, like I think, like almost 17 prescriptions. Yeah. And then on top of that, let's go back to the drinking. And then on top yeah. of that, when I was in a regular infantry unit before I went to the Warrior Transition Battalion, I was getting told, why are you on all these medications? Just drink. Drink whiskey. It's what men do. So now I have leadership telling me to drink whiskey versus professional doctors telling me to take opiates and sleeping pills. And then that meets in the middle, and that's a disaster. Mm -hmm. It's a deathly cocktail, and we find it all too often, don't we? Yeah, and we do. And I'm telling you right now, I'm I'm, I'm throwing it out there. I'm, I'm reaching out to the highest leadership I can, like leadership needs, like if your soldier is addicted to alcohol, if your soldier is addicted to opiates, that leadership needs to be held accountable because they are a good reason why that person is like that. Because piss poor leadership 
will will push a soldier to that point. Yeah. So well, you know. think you, you think about the attitude, and that's an old attitude actually that has stuck around for shit. 30, 50 years prior to you ever coming into the military about oh, yeah. the attitude of, you know, how, especially combat arms, who's, you know, definitely held to a different standard than the, the rest of the army. And then, of course, it goes even higher as you go into the soft community. But certainly it's about, you know, maintaining a certain status quo or a certain image. And, and if you're the type of soldier that's going to break that by going to sick call all the time or talking about how you're hurt or whatever the case may be, then you're weak. So, you know, everybody then comes into that and starts realizing, man, I can't speak up. Like you said, you got to break that stigma. Well, here's, here's I think, is, a, is another stigma that people have is, so if I tell you, um, hey, look, I, got, I need to go get some mental health. I got, I got PTSD or whatever. I, I think the problem is, you know, you looking in, like I'm reaching to you for help. But I tell you, hey, look, I, I got all these problems. You know, your first thought is, wow, this guy's suicidal. Yep. You know, when realistically, you know, and, and we'll get to that, um, my story on that here here in a minute. But, you know, realistically, that that's over a period of time. Like if somebody's reaching out to you for help at first, they're, they're not at that point. You know, they just want to go talk to somebody. They want somebody to kind of give them the advice on hey, man, this is what you need to do to to get your closure. Because a lot of it's closure. Um, a lot of it is things things that you can do to avoid the whether you're jittery or whether your anxiety is bad. There's a lot of things that you can do. And the problem is, is, is when you reach out to help, the first thing somebody thinks is, wow, this guy's going to kill himself. Let's, yep. let's, 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 let's take, in my world, it's, let's take guns and badges. You know, yep. let's, let's put it, uh, first of all, we're gonna throw this dude on suicide watch. When, when, and, and, and then, then you've ruined his career. You know, yeah. now you have pushed him to that point. Well, back in the day, was I'm That's, sorry, Paul, wasn't it the same thing back in Article 15s where he hated out like it seems like? Um, well, this is back probably in the early 90s or something of that period. You know, it was quick when a commander would see a soldier who's failing, not paying their bills or anything else. Well, he'll give them an Article 15. That'll treat him. No, dummy. What you just did is took two hundred and fifty, you know, five hundred dollars yeah. away from him, and the man can't pay his bills right now. How did you help him out? Yeah. What What we need is, like you're saying, Blake. You don't. I've said this before. I'm going to say it many, many more times until people start listening. It, you don't go through a training cycle with the same M4 and then deploy with it without sending it to the armorer. So why would you take an even more sophisticated machine, which is your body, send it through all that stress, and then just keep running it down the line? Just keep running it down the line. Nobody's yeah. checking it. No experts are looking at it. Like there, are, there are armors for your brain. You need to be talking to them, and it needs to be regular so that you don't get to suicide. Everybody jumps right to, you know, this this guy's going to mental health or he's going to see psych, and it must be because he wants to kill himself or, you know, he's a shitbird or whatever. When really, that guy. It should be a get an accommodation for that. Like he should be commended for it because he's making sure that he's running right. And yeah, it should just be par for the course. Whether you're law enforcement, if you're in a high stress job like that, you you need that. You shouldn't. Um, how I can't be the best that I can be if if I'm not mentally 100. percent I can be I can be physically 100 percent all day long, but as a full person, as overall, I'm only going to give you 50 percent. Because mentally is the other fifty percent. So I'll, you know, 
it, it's it's okay because you have to heal yourself before you can go fight again. Like it's just like you said, like you got to make sure you're 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 in check, and then get back in the fight. Like and, you know, and that's and that's why like you know I've I've, I've put my face out there. I've, I'm, I you know I've risked my job uh, as a cop um, because if I can try to break the stigma in the law enforcement and in first responders, I'm gonna try to break the stigma in military too. So I'm I'm, I'm trying to work in both of them because. You know, in law enforcement, we're 198 deaths in suicide. That's yeah. we're over a hundred deaths in suicide than we are law enforcement. Like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, um, officer involved deaths. Like, like more cops have have killed themselves than been shot. Like that, that blows my mind. And then at the military, we're talking 20 people a day. That's honestly like I sat back and thought about that the other day. That's hard to think about. Twenty well, people. The numbers actually could be higher. Um, you know, when, when you, yeah, when, it depends on what period you focus on because I think that's a national uh, number, and it's usually based on everybody who's ever been a veteran. So they go back all the way to you know those living still, which could yeah. be World War II veterans. And in some cases, you can make the argument that maybe some of the suicides are not directly related to a combat situation. It's really hard to tell, right? But. Yeah. If you take the GWAP period, and, and since we've been engaged on the global war of terror since 2001, I think the suicide rate, if I understand it correctly, has actually spiked in that period of time in these last 18 years. And so if you measure that, it, that number actually could be in relation to the number of veterans that actually saw uh, combat. That number could actually be much, much greater. And I, and yes. I don't think this is going to change because, you know, what we're engaging in right now is... Um, less of a conventional military uh, who's fighting the combat. Uh, you know, we're, we're focusing on special operations forces, um, kind of a, a niche market and in a, in a group of individuals that we've infused a lot of money into um, becoming these great warriors. And the problem is they're going out there and doing, you know, what maybe used to be three, seven missions a day might be doubled now because they don't have the the staff to be able to backfill them in the time that would be necessary. And their deployments are used to be maybe four to five months, maybe now extended to six months. So you're doing more missions for a longer period of time on faster rotations with no relief in sight. And it was interesting. I was just having a conversation, um, you know, about this topic. And, and I hope we're going to do a podcast on this very soon. Paul, you know what I'm getting ready to say. And that is that the quality of, um, individuals from a physical standpoint not just mental but a physical standpoint capable of doing life in the military because you know they don't ride bikes anymore they don't go out running all the time and all of that their bone density is actually less in kids today than what they were kids 18 years ago like by as much as 30 percent as i understand it it's a video game generation so so now you're you know you take the soft community they can't find these ultra ultra um alpha you know we say alpha male alpha people you know male female whatever the case may be they just can't even find enough good bullets to shoot down range right now so this is going to get worse before it gets better in that sense and we've got a real issue here if we want to salvage what we have, and I think that's what we're kind of talking about here, we're going to have to invest the time, money, and energy into the people that we already have in the fight that want to continue but need the break and the opportunity to heal. 
and then we can get them back in the fight. And I think commands are starting to realize this more. It's going to take a while though before it filters all the way down. Yeah. Or, you know, but like I, I don't know why you would have like yeah, like why you would have this. Like, let's put it in a vehicle aspect: a Lamborghini, and then blow the engine. You know, or let the engine get blown. And then it's useless. Yeah. And then you're going to replace it with something like a Fiesta or something. Like it's it's just crazy. There like, you go. Yeah. Like like keep that. Keep that soldier healthy. I mean, you've done training this dude. Like, yeah, his again back to physical ability. Yes, he might look great, but where is he at mentally? We need to spend that much time as we do in making sure people are doing PT, making sure people are working out. We need to put that much time on pre-deployment into their brains. We have seen many photos, especially out on social media, of individuals who've lost limbs that are still out there in the fight. And they're still yeah. in special operations forces, right? Um, you know, engaged in some of the highest missions and stuff. Um, they're in the conventional military, still doing their job on a daily basis. You're absolutely right. And, and it was funny when you were talking earlier about your own situation, that was the same thought that was crossing my mind is in automobiles, there was a period of time that if the car was ever damaged as an, as a secondary owner, you wanted to know that because you were concerned about that damage could be, um, life-threatening to you and your family later on down the line. And you don't want to own something that has ever been in any type of wreck. I don't care if it was just a small fender bender or whatever the case. Nowadays, the way technology has changed, not only are the cars um, designed to you know, withstand the impact, but those that actually they can repair, they do it in such a manner that it's almost like a brand new car anyway especially if they're using, you know, brand new parts or something of that nature. So you're getting, you know, a, a car now where most people don't care if it's already been in a wreck before they walk around it. They have it checked out by a maintenance crew or a body crew and they go, yep, it's, it's good to go. It's, it's just like brand new or yeah, it's uh, just as good as, uh, you know, the cars of a similar age has not been in a wreck. That's the way we got to start treating the, the human body as well. Yeah. Well, I think it's, from a purely economic perspective, it makes sense. It's like you were saying, Blake, we expect our mil our service members to deliver Ferrari performance, but we give them G Jiffy Lube maintenance. Yeah. That's a fact. Yeah. We, we pour all these tax dollars into training our soldiers, and there's all this lip service from our politicians to say how much they love us, and we just don't invest in the upkeep and the maintenance, preventative maintenance, you know, like so, that's crucial yeah, to, it's, to it's longevity. Very, so a part of that TBI pipeline, you had to see a psychiatrist um, or a therapist, whichever one. And they need to start doing something where soldiers can build that trust with those people. Like, because let me tell you something, when I come to see you, okay. And I, and I, and I want help. Like, I want to tell you like, Oh man, this is how I'm feeling. But you pull out a piece of paper, okay, and your first question is, "Are you suicidal?" I don't, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to talk to you. Like one hundred percent. I went to one appointment every single month, and the first question I was asked every single month, "Are you suicidal?" Sheesh. That's the that's the number one. Um, no, and I'm good. I have nothing to talk about. But in reality, so so I would just go home and drink. You know, it's, yeah. it's whatever. Like, yeah, I got something I want to talk about. I just want you to help me, like, figure out, like, what I need to do to feel better. And it wasn't until I got out and I went through a mental breakdown that I talked to a civilian. I think 
that the military should make you go see a civilian instead of the military. Because the civilian person that I went to, he was a veteran. He ran, he owned the business. And it was absolutely amazing. And he helped me. That man, I went to one visit. And that man saved my life off one visit. Wow. That's so. tremendous. And, and we've heard the same thing. I, I know that, you know, in many cases, it's not just go to one therapist. You got really lucky. But there's people who go to multiple therapists. And in some cases, they find it even more comforting to go to uh, a female therapist if they're a male. Mm -hmm. uh, somebody who had not, never served because then they don't feel threatened. They don't feel like this individual, you know, they, they've got to treat them in a certain way or something like that. And it's just more calming, uh, the situation. Yeah. That's a great point. But I think then you're going to, you're, you're looking at funding, right? That's really heavily supporting certain jobs that are therapists right now internally. You've yeah. got chaplains, you know, in the chaplains group and the whole bit that's also getting some of that funding. Yeah. You're getting, you know what I mean? You've got all of that. So it's all about just like, you know, with all the forces fighting over the same dollar, it's the same thing in how we're going to go about helping individuals. The problem with, and this is why I tell people, the problem with military therapists that are chaplains, that are that are soldiers or, or um, officers, and, and their therapists or their psychiatrists, and this is how I label it. It's like, it's like going to CIF and getting issued gear. It's military grade. It's this, but it falls apart so fast. And that's what I consider those therapists. They're military grade. They've been stamped, but they're cheap. And they don't care because it's one person after another. And what what was ahead. it about the civilian you saw, the civilian therapist, that was so different? The so, one that ended up saving your life. Right. Yeah. So let's, we'll go ahead and get into that, into that story. So, um, five years, uh, after I got out, um, I had, you know, I, I, I woke up every single day. I put a smile on my face, you know, cause I'm, a, I'm, you know, I'm a cop, you know, I, I can't, I can't talk about this. Like at this point, once I'm out, I'm out. Like there's no, there's no talking about it. Um, so for five years, I, I bottled it up. Um, it was, you know, every morning I woke up, I said, Hey man, you gotta make everybody laugh. So people don't see how bad you're hurting. Okay, and I did that. Everybody around me, I laughed. I made laugh. I was the funny person. People loved being around me. It's it, it was great. Well, Thanksgiving of last year, um, we had found out that my dad had got hooked on drugs, heavy drugs. So um, we went down to where I was from, me and my brother, and we went to try to talk to him, and he was high. First time. In my life, I've never seen my dad, my dad high. You know, he was a school teacher. He was a volunteer firefighter. You know, I never would have, you know, he was always in church. Always, hell, he was always preaching to me about drinking. So, and then I got this person. So, you know, um, and I remember we left and went back home to my mom's house. It was Thanksgiving. And I drank until three in the morning. I took a whole bottle of Jack Daniels in my mom's cabinet until three in the morning. And what started me was my demons was here you go okay you are you, you couldn't help your dad out okay because this is what brought it all out is i couldn't help my dad out your dad's hooked okay you couldn't help your friend out on an appointment that died okay 
here you are drinking a bottle of Jack Daniels. Now your demons are awoken or awakened and you can't even help your fucking self out. So over the next 30, 40 days was did, did I know that was about to be my last 30 or 40 days of my life? Um, I still woke up every day, made people laugh. Nobody had zero idea of the actual mental pain that I was in. Um, I drank every single night, bottle of Tito's, bottle of Jack Daniels, at this table, where I'm sitting at now, but complete darkness while everybody was sleeping. Um, and I'd go to bed at 2, 3 in the morning, wake up, go to work, whatever. Quit going to the gym. Um, and then uh, my wife had had surgery on New Year's Eve. And my, my, my son wasn't here. And he was with his grandfather. And my wife was in the bed, passed out. And I sat in here and drank two bottles of Jack Daniels. Uh, the ball had dropped. Um, it was about two in the morning. And I told myself, you know what? Um, you have a great life insurance policy. Okay. You're not helping nobody out. You're gone to shit. You, who are you going to talk to? You're a cop. Who are you going to talk to? Same thing with military. Who are you going to talk to? You know, I'm fucking tired. I am physically and mentally fucking exhausted. So I made a video to my wife. Um, and I don't know if you guys watched the little mini documentary. Yeah. So that so yep. I did so that was only ten seconds of, of that video. That was a minute long video. I didn't want to share the whole thing because um, I just really wanted to give a taste of how I was feeling so other people can relate. Like, damn, like that that dude was like that. Like yeah. he's not just another veteran out here trying to claim a nonprofit and, and get money. Like he he was feeling like that. So I'm gonna reach out to him. So I made a minute long video. Um, you know, and put the phone down. Um, I put it there. I wrote a little note on my on my thing on my phone. Watch, watch, watch video, and uh, um, I put the gun in my head, and uh, it's completely dark, very silent. And I remember bawling my eyes out. Put my finger on the trigger. It was a Glock 19. I had taken that little bit of slack out. And I heard a, a demonic laugh. It felt, it got really cold. I heard like a, <laughs> really weird. Like, maybe I was drunk and heard it. I don't know, but I heard it. And I remember sitting there thinking like, in a split second, I thought, wow. Um, you're losing. You just let something else, your brain, Satan, whoever, you just let something control you. He laughed because you were on the verge of killing. You about killed yourself. You were going to kill yourself. I was going to do it. I, I mean, if I wouldn't have heard that laugh, I would not be sitting here talking to you. I was tired. I was mentally and physically fucking exhausted of waking up, faking my fucking life, coming home, and drinking. I was tired. And I remember setting that gun down, and um, I was like, you got to go get help. You're a fucking cop. You're not making millions of dollars. You go work a fucking Dick's Sporting Goods and make the same check you're making now. So I did that. Um, the next day, um, 
I told my wife, I'm like, hey, this is what happened. Here's the video. Um, I got to go get help. Um, you don't understand. I can't explain it to you. She didn't understand. Because, again, you got to think every day I'm kissing her, telling her I love her, making her laugh, making my family laugh. Yeah. And she it caused a huge – caused an argument because um, I couldn't explain it to her. And then the day um, – the second, I went and seen the therapist. And I told him my whole story. And he said, this is what you need to do. He said, look, he said, I'm not going to sit here and try to pull things out of you. I'm not going to sit here and counter you questions. He was like, I want you to be healthy. I want you to get back to where you used to be. Um, he said, what you need to do is you need to get on an airplane. You need to fly to San Diego, California, and you need to visit your friend's grave. I said, yeah, I do. I said, because more than anything I'd want to do in this world is tell that man that I am sorry. I am fucking sorry. I, some sort, some way, I failed you. When you took me under your wing, you showed me the ways, you did a lot for me, and I couldn't even fucking give you some blood. So I did that. But what caused the problem, and this is why I try to tell spouses, if there's any spouses that listen to this, is don't try to figure out what they're going through. Because I, 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 you got to understand, I came home. Me and my wife have had a very successful marriage. We don't go – we've been successful because we don't do anything without each other. We, like, we, we, we love hanging out with each other. We don't travel without each other. I'd rather travel with her than, than any of my friends because we had that much fun together. And here I am telling her after seven years of marriages, I'm flying to Cal- San Diego, California, where there's beautiful people everywhere, and, uh, and you can't go. Why can't I go? You just can't go. So we fought about this. It almost won my marriage and everything. So I flew to, I flew to San Diego. You know, she ended up um, – you know, talking with the counselor, and we, we and, and he was like, and then it became more realistic. Like, yeah, damn, yo, my husband's going through something, like for real, like um, because I never even really talked about Nick that much to her, you know, because you don't want to talk about it, you know. You, you might take a shot on the birthday, or you take a shot on the anniversary, and she sees it, you know, she sees the aluminum bracelets on your wrist, you know. But they don't ever like. I, I wrote a poem one time. Um, when I was going through all this, it was called the weight of an aluminum bracelet. Um, and people don't understand, like it's to people, they look at it. It's, it's just a piece of aluminum, but for like people like us, you know, that that's, that shit's buried in your soul. It's heavy. Like it's really heavy. So I flew out there. I went to his grave. Um, I sat at his grave for three and a half hours and cried, said, I was sorry. And I left and I went home two days early because that's all I needed. That I then started my healing process. Yeah. Because what I was told is, man, you've been grieving. You've been grieving for years. You can't heal until you feel like you need to do something. And inwardly, and, yeah. inwardly, you had been grieving, not outwardly enough. Yeah. In, in inside, I've been I've been burning. Like my soul is burning, and. Um, and I did that, and I'm going to tell you something, that um, just by reaching out and getting help, not I mean, you don't got to go to a psychiatrist, go to a therapist, and they'll give you advice. And that's what he did. And he said, hey, if you need a follow-up appointment, I got you. When you get back, make one up, and, and, and we'll talk about it. And uh, I called him up, and I said, hey, I just want to tell you, thank you. I don't need a follow-up appointment. 
I'm now starting my healing process. And since then, I have I have been only platform I got is social media is my Instagram. And I have been reaching out to everybody. And I think um, 2019, I think I've, I've probably I'd say the count last time I counted, I've helped over 100 people from killing themselves. Like, wow, there's a guy amazing, in my gym, man. a soldier in my gym. They, they were, you know, he, he had a drinking problem. The army created his drinking problem. And all the kid ever wanted to do was was be in the army. And they're kicking his ass out because they deemed him to be an alcoholic. Well, I'm in the gym, and it's like 9 o'clock at night. And he walks up to me and says, hey, you're so-and-so from Instagram. You're, you're a cop, right? I said, yeah. He was like, I need to talk to you. I'm like, damn, you know, fuck. Like, I'm fucking skin's burning. I'm pumping right now, you know. Is it, you know like, what? Like, what? Damn, what, what do you want to talk about? And he's like, hey, I'm uh, I'm about to go out in my car and shoot myself. He's like, I'm I'm I, I'm a failure. I talked to that dude, man, for like three hours. Um, and that's probably my favorite story to tell because that kid just graduated college. Um, he had a two-year degree before, and now he's got his finished his degree. Um, he's living in Ohio. He's got a job. He's happy, you know. And I'm not even telling people to reach out to um, to therapists. Reach out to a friend. Reach out to somebody that can relate to you because here's the problem is I didn't feel like I could reach out to anybody because I, I, I didn't feel like I could reach out to my wife because my whole marriage, I've, you know, my wife was in a domestic relationship and then she met me and I've protected my whole family for eight years. I'm their protector. How can I come to you as now I'm weak, like oh man damn my husband's mentally breaking down you know like oh, oh like he can't protect us i didn't want to go to teammates on my swat team because i didn't want to think i'm crazy like oh you know cook's got some ptsd stuff like i don't want him going into a house with me like you know so i kept that real low and then you know i didn't want to reach out to my army buddies because like in my mind i'm sitting there thinking like you know they're you know, because they might be putting fake smiles on. So you look at their I was social say, they're medias. probably dealing with their own demons. Yeah. Yeah. You look at their social medias. You're like, well, damn, it's not bothering them. I don't want to reach out to them. because They're going to think I'm weak. Like they went through the same stuff I went through. And here I am breaking down. They're not breaking down. So I didn't. So who do you reach out to? That's the ultimate question. You reach out to your friends. You reach out to your family. You reach out to therapists because I guarantee you that somebody, everybody goes through some type of mental crisis. Everybody has a mental hurt and everybody can relate on that because we're human and we have a heart and we have feelings. No matter what, somebody is going through something and it's okay to reach out. Nobody's going to think you're crazy. People are actually going to condemn you and say, you might help. I might help Paul out. I might be messed up. And I might reach out to him, and he'd been like, God, dude, I'm feeling the same way. Let's sit down and talk about it. And then you just help two people out. So it's 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 this the stigma of like you ain't got nobody is is false. And that's what I tell people, like, hey man, have you reached out to any of your old army buddies? Because they I promise you they're feeling the same way you are. Mm-hmm. And I never knew this, and I always kind of thought this. I never knew this until that mini documentary came out. And I had several people that I used to work with that were like, man, we've been feeling the same way over years. We're going to go get help. And I'm like, 
dude, like for real, like are y'all fucking with me? Because are you, are you making jokes? Like, because you know, that's kind of what you do. Like, you, you, right? You know, that's it's army stuff. You know, you, yeah, it's whatever. And they're like, no, dude. Like, I've always wondered if anybody else had felt like this, but I never wanted to reach out. So it's like, wow, like to help people that I deployed with was was crazy. So like, I guarantee you that if you reach out to your army army buddies, they're going through the same stuff. You recently did, through All Secure Foundation, a video that hasn't been released yet. It's more of a, a documentary type of thing. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm the CEO of All Secure Foundation. And when they contacted us and said that they wanted to do something like this, there were several individuals that were identified that they would sit around a campfire, basically, and share their story. Of course, Tom and Jen Satterley were there and, you know, were part Great of this people. as well. Yeah. And um, the co-founders. And um, it was Jen who actually mentioned uh, you and said, you know, hey, there's this guy, you know, Blake, and um, he goes by Blackbeard and everything on social media. You've got to hear his story. But, you know, one of our hosts was also there, uh, Kat, Kat Kalin. And oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, it was a, a very, as I understand it, profound um, discussion, very moving and I hope that it comes out sometime soon there. You know, I don't want to give too much details and stuff. Yeah, yeah, me too. I, I'm so glad you came on our show to talk about it's, your it's, story. Um, I think you guys got a great platform. I think everybody that's involved in, 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 uh, in your podcast, I think everybody's, you know, does a great job. I think everybody's, I think everybody just wants to, to I think everybody's on the same mission. Um, and that's, what's cool is like, I don't do a lot of podcasts. Um, I'm afraid that I might stutter and things like that, but it's just like, you know, I, I did one with a guy named Dan Cox, phenomenal guy. Um, and I realized that like, when you do things like this, you reach out to, you can reach out to people. Yeah. And ultimately like I've been through a lot. Um, you know, I've defined a lot of things. Um, I'm, I'm defining the stigma right now. Like I'm at the point now where it's like, I would rather, I'm going to save a life. I'm going to save, if I can save one person, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And and then I can build on that. Like if, you know, and, and I've had, and I'm telling you, and that's another thing with, with, with police officers and military, like you'll be surprised your chain of command support. You know, we're, we're, we're in a day and age where people are starting to realize. And I had a conversation about this today with a, the with a first sergeant in the, in the one five Oh four on the internet. And we're going to try to work on something to where like, Oh, great. Maybe I go talk to, you know, each individual company and be like, Hey, look, like, you know, um, this is what I do now. You'll be the gray beard. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and it's just like, you know, it's, it's such a good, this is such a good platform because there's so many military and, and there's law enforcement that watch this. And there's, the problem is, is, is there's a, in where we're at now is most law enforcement are veterans and yeah. they don't want to, they don't want to get help because they're scared. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm letting them know that it's, it's okay because here's the deal. Um, don't be they don't want to be that chief they don't want to be that chain of command in 2019 that says you reach out and then they screw you because let me tell you something this community will eat you alive yeah do not let somebody reach out for help and you screw them Thank i will God. make it my mission okay the va pays me great i don't need a job i'm gonna tell you something right now i will make it my mission to throw you out there and to make sure that you lose your job, because if that person kills kills himself, that's on you, and that's on me for not helping. So, luckily for me, my chief is like, "Hey, go get it, 
do your thing, boy. Get it. You know, well, you, you got know, my full support. In your own community, I mean, Tom's been on this podcast a lot and talked about this very subject because he just recently came from speaking at a police officers type of association. I think it was down in Florida. And, you know, the difference, you know, PTS is PTS. Uh, the same issues, the same trauma, the same, you know, struggles and stuff are real on both sides. However, the difference is that Tom talks about, um, and, and I'm sure you would, um, you know, back this up, is that for a police officer, they go to the same scene of the crime every day, sometimes to go get ice cream with their kids, to go to the movie, whatever. And so they're going to pass that situation. That's going to run through their mind every time they go to the store to give milk, every time they go take their kids to a certain location. And it, and it's just going to keep weighing on them. Whereas a soldier, that happened 5,000 miles away. Mm-hmm. The problem with, with I feel like, I live in a war zone every single day. There's nowhere I can go in this city that I feel safe um, because of the job I do now. Um, we recently had a person that we've arrested, um, somehow found our Facebooks, started blasting us on his Facebook. Um, so, you know, everywhere you go, you have to carry, you know, and everybody should carry anyways, but it's like, you know, because everywhere you go in the city, I've done something there. There's been a violent crime happen there. Um, and my wife's from here, so she's like, but I've never had a problem. But I'm like, well, because you don't, you don't hear about it. Mm-hmm. You know, did you hear about the robberies today? Did you hear about the people getting shot today? No, because it's not something you want to put on the news because this is the all-American city. You know, this is the military. So they don't want to put that stuff out there. And, and, and um. Um, I'm glad you said that because I was about to hit on a topic. Um, ah, it slipped my mind, but I'll, I'll think of it. But it, it's um, it's crazy. Be- oh, because it's what I was going to say is, um, you know, as as law enforcement, you know, you get these people that have, you know, some of these people that have never been through traumatic, you know, um, traumatic events in their life, and then you know, like one day it could, you know, an average Fayetteville police officer will take twenty to thirty calls a day. That's a lot of calls because yeah. each call. You're, you don't you're know. Having to, you know, you don't know what it's going to be. It could be an hour long. It could be, hey, get off the property. You're going to go to jail. It could be something, or it could be the worst calls of twelve. Like I took a call one time for a twelve-year-old boy that had hung himself from a ceiling fan. You know, that's the same age as my son right now. Okay, so so then you you know they come out, they do their investigation, and then you know they cut him down, or or you know you, you cut him down or whatever to make sure he's dead. And, and, you know, medics come and, and all this stuff. And and then after that, um, now I got to go deal with some barking dog. Okay. And then after all these calls of back to forth calls like this, because that's how it is. It's back to forth calls. Then when I get off work, I got to go home and be a dad. Right. You know, I got to go home and be a So the moment I walk through the door, hey, dad, you want to go throw football? Hey, dad, can you do this? Hey, can you help me with my homework? Can you do this? Can you do that? At what point is there a time to be like, wow, rough day, you know? Yeah. It's and, and, and that's just, and that's, you know, law enforcement all over the place. Like it's, it's, and even first responders, like I, I used this, I, I, you know, a couple of weeks ago, um, we were, I was talking about this with some firefighters that were, so some firefighters from here reached out to me because they were struggling as, as they should, because um, about three, three, four weeks ago, there was a really bad car wreck in the city. And the only person they got killed was a, I think, a five-year-old little girl. 
and they were talking to me. They were they were like, man, you know, I got to pull that little girl out, and I got to carry her to the body bag. So, you know, and and everybody's most of us have kids, so it's like, how do you go from carrying a little girl into a body bag to I gotta go somebody lock themselves out of their car, okay? Yeah, and then you got to play tough because. You know, you got the older firefighters there that have been doing this forever, you know, and they don't talk about it because it's a stigma. Right. So right. then they got to, you know, then they got, they, they'll, they'll tell me, you know, we get off our 24 hour shift and all I want to do is drink and go to sleep. So it's just kind of like, it's really bad here, especially as cops, because um, you live in your war zone. You live in your fucking war zone. It's not like I'm a soldier. I come back home. I go to fucking B-dubs. And I'm you know, I'm away from the terrorists. Mm-hmm. You don't think about people killing you. I go to a restaurant here. I go to anywhere here. I'm finding the exits. I'm looking at people. Have I arrested them? Have I arrested them? Have I done something? Why is that person looking at me? Why are they trying to walk behind me? You know, are they about to rob me? Oh, this car just pulled up. They look like they're about to rob something. You know, and it's like it's constant. It's constant. The only place you feel safe is in your house where my rifles are. And, you know, and unfortunately, that's that's part of the job. That's no matter what cop you talk to. That's 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 every single cop. So and but people need to know that, hey, on your days off once a month, once a week, go see a therapist. I do now. I, I go see that same therapist just to even if it's 20 minutes, just to bullshit, you know. He might be able to pull something out of me that I that I didn't even know I had, and he'll work with me on that. You know, hey man, he's like, hey, how's your week going? Week's going good. You seen anything traumatic? No, not this week. But you know, my anxiety has been kind of bad. Well, why is your anxiety bad? You know, so it's it's you know, so just by going once a week, and it's back to the car thing. It's it's like taking it's like taking your car to get get maintenance. Mm-hmm. You know, preventative you Yep. Yeah, you put gas in your car to keep your car going. Like, yeah, you got to do the same thing with your body. So it's just, you know, th- there's a lot that's got to be done. I think everybody is, um, I think you guys are moving in the right direction with it, and I'm moving in the right direction with it. And I think, it, you know, once, you know, we're all going to eventually, you know, we're all teaming up. And I think we're going to make a major, major impact um, in, in doing this. I think so as well. And I think, uh, you know, there's organizations that I know Paul is affiliated with and looking at beginning as well in uh, the equine part of it. And, you know, there's um, organizations that's focused in several different angles. But I think what's good about that is, is you know, to your point, there are so many that are focused on that, that it the DOD has no other um, course of action. They have to now do something because it's being forced that way. People are coming to them and saying, hey, listen, this is what our nonprofit, this is what our foundation is doing. Or they've talked to congressmen, you know, representatives or whatever, who are asking the command the same questions. What are you doing about this? Because I've got organizations coming to me that are dealing with veterans that have had these issues and said, Nothing was being done while while uh, while they were on active duty, so I think the the political pressure, the pressure from the outside, you know, the pressure from even you know seeing other foundations or organizations that are working to help, is starting to hopefully break some of that stigma, and um, I think as that starts coming about and people gain trust and confidence in their command that 
they'll be more willing to step forward. Yeah. Because until the people really honestly do, Blake, that are on the inside, start stepping forward and saying, hey, I did it. And somebody else stands up and said, I did it too. And three or four of them all say, yeah, we did it and we're still here. And and then that's when other guys will go, okay, well, then I'm signing up tomorrow. I'm, I'm yeah. calling right now to make a, uh, an appointment with a therapist. And, and and I think that's my end goal. Um, people ask me all the time, well, what, what's your end goal to this? Um, what are you looking to do? What are you looking to achieve? I'm looking to create a small army of people that have said, I've done it. One after another. And it just keeps going and going and going and going. Like a domino effect that never ends. That's my end goal. Um, well, that's great think, because sometimes it takes that one person to step yep. out like Tom refers to it, you know, and especially coming from the Delta community. Um, yeah. Somebody's when the music starts, somebody's got to get on the dance floor first. And that's yeah. kind of what you're doing. I'll do it. I'll do it. Um, I do it because um, I think that people that do this job, I think. I think the job chooses you. I think the people that have been in the military and law enforcement, I don't think that's a job where people choose. I think that the job chooses you. And, and um, I love this community. Um, some of the finest fucking people I've ever stood next to were in the military and law enforcement. And if I got to be that voice and I got to be that face um, to get it started, I got no problem with that whatsoever. Because if I can save a life, I'll take a life over money any day. So... That's 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 my goal. Anything that we can do to get behind that, we're all for it, man. You know, Absolutely, because I mean, hundred percent. Yeah. So appreciate everything that you're doing, Blake. Um, continue sharing your story. Love to have you back on again. It's nothing, nothing else to check on you and the progress that's been going on and the work that's being undertaken. I got a feeling, even in the shortest time frame of six months to twelve months from now, you'll have a lot to share. I hope so. I look forward to it, guys. You're pretty driven. I can see it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it's the right. beard. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. And as a matter of fact, if people were wondering what some of that noise was, that was your microphone. You were rubbing your beard was rubbing up against the microphone. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. So, it's, all, it's, all the, it's all the manliness. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Sound a little bit like uh, at times like uh, somebody brushing their teeth. Good stuff. <laughs> All right, man. Blake, thank yeah. you for uh, taking time out of your busy schedule, man. Wish you nothing but success. Yes. Thank you guys very much. Yeah, man. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Keep up. Thank you guys. Keep up the fight, man. Yeah. Well, hey, get back on it. We'll partner up. And I, I really think that, um, I think in 2020, I think we're going to see a very positive impact on people, on people breaking the stigma.